Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 19th, 2017. It is a Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Time for a listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone and you mash the numbers 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and you can leave us a message on the speak pipe with the speak pipe button. Either way, this is the way to make your call. The way you'll hear them made today. Ask your question or make your point and do that in one to two sentences maximum. Immediately. Not everybody did it today, but they did it good enough. But that's the best way. Then give me your details, and then if you want to tell me something about stuff going on in your life or whatever, then do that. In general, that will work best. I don't say this to be a butthole. I say this because I have to sit down and, you know, screen these calls. And the faster I know what the call's about, the quicker I know whether or not I'm going to put the call on the show, and the more efficiently I can give you an answer. Also, I talk for a living. Most of you, not all of you, most of you don't. You call into a show, you start talking about five different things, and you never really get your point out. You don't even realize it because there's no one there to say, hey, it's not like calling live radio where the host says, hey, so what's your question, right? It just goes better. Trust me. I'm not bitching. This is me trying to help me help you, all right? Next up, let's go ahead and tell you what we're going to be talking about today. I'm jazzed, if you can't tell. Uh, this is one of the, the like more diverse and kind of cool Call-in shows we've had for a while. Got a question on when and how to sell off property in kind of a unique situation. Somebody done gone done it and showed me another freaking gun I want, an Aero Survival Rifle, and they make it freaking 10 millimeter. It's pretty cool, and I've been asked my opinion about it, and my opinion is I wish you didn't tell me about it. Just kidding, but uh, I'll talk about that. A new way to look at the collapse of pensions and the resulting predatory fees being issued by government all over the place. The 223 Wild. What the hell's that? Why should you care? And the 742 Remington Semi-Auto, and the thoughts on that will cover all of the 742, 740, 7400, 750 Woodsmaster, all of the Semi-Auto Remington uh, Sporter rifles. Um, we have becoming a landlord in an odd way, and is there any real tax advantages to it? I'm going to talk about how sometimes... People think you can create a tax advantage or a tax deduction and you really can't or you're playing some games that could get you hurt. Um, when to get law enforcement involved with child bullying. A Leo calls in about the uh, problem that a listener had earlier this week with their child being bullied and, and, and basically a child telling other childs to kill them. Okay, so that's, uh, we're gonna hear Leo's take on this, and I actually agree, but I still think every situation is unique. So we'll talk about that. Dealing with compacted soil, really compacted soil in the, the tropics, and of all places, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I think my advice will help anybody out there with compacted soil issues, and kind of denuded soil issues, but, but here's the big but. We'll learn some things about Guantanamo Bay, Cuba that I didn't know. Like, how freaking big it is. I didn't really get it, I don't think. 
Another TSP listener launches a business. We'll hear about that. We have a question on using a pond for aquaponics, but more like a garden pond or something you build, not like a, like a traditional large, like what you think of like a farm pond, right? We're talking about like a, a more suburbanite type pond. So we can make that work depending on some things we'll talk about. And storing produce in large quantities. I have a project that I'll be revealing that uh, we're going to be doing this spring And uh, we're going to, you know, talk about that as a solution to this question for someone that has a, you know, kind of a, a, a farm stand uh, a produce business that ends up with more produce for longer than they can really take care of it in a way that's actually very money saving over some other options. All of that and more in just a bit before we get into that. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. And today's TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is NaturallyConscious.com. This is a great product to check out if you're getting into food storage and looking to add to your preps. NaturallyConscious.com provides a no-waste alternative to plastic when buying food from bulk bins. Stock up on dry goods or produce with these washable, durable, reusable bags at NaturallyConscious.com. It's another example of the cool businesses that this community has created over the years. Again, you can find them all at TSPBiz.com. Uh, now, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1934. We have Star Trek, The City on the Edge of Forever. That's the one we're going to read today, and it's not all about Star Trek, really. We have the Daily Mail says, Hoorah for the black shirts. As I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to tell you they are the equivalent of the brown shirts in the now fascist uh, state of Italy. And Finding the Cure for Alcoholism. It gets into some things that were going on at the time. Before we read our segment of the day, let us read notable births. Norman Schwarzkopf, Jr., Commander-in-Chief of CENTCOM during Operation Desert Storm. Carl Sagan, best known for the science program Cosmos and the novel Contact. Ralph Nader, who is living it today, author of Unsafe at Any Speed and Presidential Candidate. Jane Goodall, living best known for her personal approach to studying chimpanzees. And in entertainment, Tom Baker is born this year. He's living. He's the fourth Doctor Who. Tina Louise is living, best known as Ginger Grant, on Gilligan's Island. Yep. Marty Feldman, comedic actor, damn your eyes, shouted young Frankenstein. Too late, replied Igor, Marty Feldman. Maggie Smith, living, best known as Professor McGonagall on the Harry Potter movies. And Harlan Ellison, living screenwriter of the controversial Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, interesting that that lined up that way. The Night of the Long Knives begins in other news. The public accepts Hitler's explanation that he is putting down rebellion amongst his own troops. It's a purge, you knuckleheads. U.S. Ambassador Dodd is oblivious. Speaking of purges, Stalin begins his purge of the Communist Party. Trotsky's ex-wife picked up. She is a dead woman. 
The Chinese begin their long march and retreat. Mao will become an inspiration for all as he escapes the encirclement by the nationalist Chinese, which in later years will become the core of the Taiwan government. So let's take a look at Star Trek, all the way back in 1934. Star Trek, the city on the edge of forever. This is about a time-traveling episode of Star Trek. But before we get into that, let's review the current state of physics. The lithium atom has been split. Neutrons have been discovered. Antimatter has been detected in cosmic rays. There is an open secret among, Nash, among scientists that a process to release the power of the atom might be possible. The German scientist Albert Einstein is touring the USA and decides to stay. Violence is escalating as Adolf Hitler becomes Fuhrer. And loyal Nazi scientist named Kurt Debiner, I'm not sure if that's the right way to say his name, joins Army Ordnance Research in Berlin. He suggests that splitting the atom could release vast amounts of energy, but there's not enough experimental evidence to confirm it. In four more years, there will be. On the eve of World War II, Debiner will assemble a team to develop an atomic bomb. Albert Einstein will send his famous letter to FBR warning that the Nazis are developing such a bomb. FDR's Manhattan Project will be a race against the Nazis and to some extent against the Japanese to develop an atomic bomb. My take by Alex Shrugged. With that background, Harren Ellison writes, writes an off-the-wall script for Star Trek. But after some disagreements, Ellison is replaced along with a number of script elements, including the reason why the episode is called The City on the Edge of Forever. The script originally called for a fully occupied city with a time portal, but costs in production, well, you know how that goes. In the final script, a drug-crazed Dr. McCoy leaps through the time portal and alters the past. In turn, alters the future. What happened? Dr. McCoy saves the life of Edith Keeler, good and true because she lives. She leads a peace movement in 1936 that delays the U.S. entrance into World War II. That gives the Nazis some time to develop the atomic bomb. In order to save the world as we know it, Edith Keeler, good and true, must die. After a, co a comical interlude with several leaps in logic, we stare in horror as Captain Kirk holds back Dr. McCoy from saving Edith's life. She walks into traffic to meet her fate, the first fate, not the second fate. Wait, which one was real? Ellison won the Writers Guild Award for Best Episodic Drama on TV, even though the script he submitted was the original one that never aired. It's interesting to think about, because, you know... When we look at mass murders in the world, dropping two bombs on two cities in Japan that killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people, mostly innocent people that were just going about their day and fried them and radiated them and all, seems quite horrific, and I believe that it was. However, one does need to ask oneself, no matter how you come down philosophically, politically, anarchist or not, libertarian or not, what would have been the consequences of the war lasting long enough that the Nazis were the first people to develop the atomic bomb? Do you think for a minute they wouldn't have dropped one on London? Do you think for a minute they wouldn't have dropped one on London? And what would have been the fate of the world? It is almost too horrifying to consider. It really is. There's actually been quite a bit of sci-fi that has postulated what the world would look like, let's say, in 1985 or you know, 2000 or 2020 had Hitler won his war. 
And one must ask, since both the Japanese and the Germans seemed intent on purging other races, would they have gone to war at the end of the war? Or would they have had something like the Cold War that the Soviet Union and the United States entered into? I don't really know. I don't really know. One would also be able to state that it may not have been necessary for us to use the bomb just because we had developed it. And I've always kind of felt that way in my heart, but in the logical mind, I realize that as horrific as that was, in the state that we were, it is likely that those bombs, while killing as many as they did, saved the lives of many more on both sides. I think we can make that logical leap. I'm not 100% sure of it. I have read historical context that by the time the war ended, Japan was on the brink of just falling apart anyway, and I've read other things that lead me to believe that they would have went down swinging with everything they had and willing to die for the emperor and the empire. And I really don't know. I really don't know. And it seems like some things in history, no matter how well documented they seem to be, we do not know what would have happened if we hadn't Fill in the blank. Now, firebombing cities with houses made out of wood and paper is something we did do, and had we lost the war, we would have been successfully prosecuted for war crimes. I bet at some point that will come up in the history segment. Um, I will also kind of point this out as we look at all of this. What is in the past is in the past. What we do in the future is more important than postulating what could have been or what would have been had something been different. Those things we should use to make determinations about how to act in the future, not to live in the past and say we shouldn't have or we should have. Because right? if, if we could do that, I could promise you right now, the TSP Ranch would be really big. It would probably be like uh, places for you guys to come stay if you wanted to because I'd have made so damn much money over the last 20 years in the stock market, I'd be able to buy half the damn state of Texas. I'm just saying. And that, So it's all good and well. We can't go back and relive the past. We can just learn from it, hopefully. And again, you guys should check out TSP Wiki. I want you to realize that uh, I, I imagine at this point it seems like Alex is committed to coming all the way up to meet us in the present, but uh, we're going to catch up awful fast. We're less than 100 episodes away from catching up to where we are in present day. And I don't know what we'll do with the history segment after that. I've been postulating, you know, just finding a site that publishes a this year in history. Usually they're pretty brief, or this day in history, and, and reading that if you guys are interested. I'd like to hear your thoughts of what you'd like to see happen at the end of the history segment in today's uh, comments, or you can email them to me with TSPC in the subject line. All right, let's get into it and take your first call of the day. Hello, Jack. My name is Brian. I am in Indiana, and I had a question about uh, if you thought it would be a good idea to sell off some property right now. I'll try to keep this short with all the details, but details are is we bought a very small house on a two-acre lot, and then we also bought the lot next to it, which is 13 and a half acres. It's all farmed right now, so we rent that out. And uh, the mar we bought it when the market was a lot lower than it is now, and now we could sell off the 13 and a half acres and completely pay off our mortgage within at least $10,000 anyway, uh, but we may get enough to pay it all off and have a little bit extra. So uh, the, the issue is that we, were, we have four kids, 
in a 900-square-foot house, and my wife really wants to get out of there, and we were going to build on the 13-and-a-half-acre lot. My thought, though, is if we sell off that the property, keep the house, and then move to another property, uh, move to that property, we can live in that for a few years, maybe even find another fixer-upper that we'll eventually be able to sell for uh, a higher value than what we, a higher price than what we would buy it for, and still be able to do our, our miniature, you know, mini farm that we have going on on that property. Um, but the idea would be that if we are in a real estate bubble, that the market would go back down, and then we could, after a few more years, we could then go buy either more property at a much lower price or a bigger house for, uh, well, lower than what we could get it for right now. So um, that's the idea. And then we would have a, a paid-off rental house that's cash flowing after expenses, taxes and insurance and things, probably close to $600 a month. So anyway, um, any help, advice you could give would be great. Thank you. Well, Brian, that's kind of complex, and let me see if I can kind of help you think through it. Um, so it sounds like your overriding plan right now is we'll sell off this 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 dirt, right, this piece of property. We'll go live somewhere else. We'll pay off the house that we're in, and we'll we'll rent it, and therefore we'll have a 100% cash flow positive against it. Um, I don't know what your plan is then to acquire a different house. And I mean, there is a point in your life where, you know, it sounds like you're financially well off enough that you should be able to live in a house that you actually want to live in. So there's a couple different ways I would look at this. If you were going to try to do this, it's universal and helps anybody thinking this way. If your plan was, we're going to stay in the house we're in. With interest rates where they are right now, I actually would not advise that you pay the, the house off. You might look at refinancing or something like that if it's beneficial or, or what have you. But I, I would actually say you take that money that you, you harvest out of that piece of property and you, you put it to work for yourself or you even put it into some sort of safe, secure laddered CDs or something like that. I mean, you should be able to find some way over the next 10 years to get more out of that than a mortgage costs you. Uh, and then you don't have that big buffer of cash that you're sitting on, right? So that's one way to look at this. If you're going to leave, it may make sense to then take some portion of that cash roll it into a refinance of the property to lower the debt burden on it so that you can have some cash flow out of it. Because what you want to do with cash flow out of a rental property is you want to make sure there's enough cash flow to build up sort of an escrow that when some shit breaks that's your problem, you can fix it. Or when you lose a tenant and you got to send somebody in there because you only have so much security deposit you can get or whatever. And a lot of times when people are going to blow a lease or whatever, they blow the house too, and you can only do so much about it. So at minimum, you're probably ripping out carpets and having the place painted and recarpeted with builder beige carpeting. Uh, so that you can get another tenant back in there as soon as possible. And you need that buffer. But the way one makes money in real estate, I don't give a shit what Dave Ramsey says, isn't that one takes a big-ass lump of money and buys a house and then rents it out and slowly gets their money back over time. One, this is, I'm not a debt guy, you know that. But real estate is a place, when it's done smartly, and if you if a property's not worth leveraging for debt, it's not worth putting all your money into either. Where one leverages debt and then allow someone else to pay your debt for you and build equity while you keep your money. 
And then the other question becomes, well, where are you going to go live and how are you going to fund a down payment, et cetera, on this new property? So if the plan is we're going to jet, we're going to go establish our lifestyle somewhere else, I would take my time. I don't think the economy is in, in, in imminent danger of collapse. I don't think the, the current bump in housing is in danger of popping anytime soon. That doesn't mean not in the next two and a half years. That means not in the next two and a half months, not in the next year. Okay, I think that we are going to be relatively stable through the rest of this year, so you have time. If it was me and I was in this situation and my, my, my thought was I want to become a landlord, I want to build wealth, I don't want to let this thing go, and I want to improve our lifestyle, I would take my time and find the right property that I wanted to be in for a very long time. I would probably go ahead and put the, the dirt up for sale, so to say, Because that might take longer. You might not get what you're looking for out of it. You're not sure. And when that money comes in, I would just take it and just put it in the bank. Don't worry that it's going to explode. Don't let it burn a hole in your pocket. And take your time looking for that next property. Find the property that makes you and the wife happy. You have kids. They're going to grow up faster than you think. Find a property that you want to see them grow up in the rest of their growing up. Find a, don't, don't wait until you retire to find your retirement property. Go find it now so that you can build into it. You know, one of the things that kind of drove this home to me, and this house, I would have never kept it, but it drove it home for me. I had a, a property in Arlington before I did the show, before the one that you guys know about, before we went to Pennsylvania. And in the front of that property, I planted a pecan tree because my father-in-law had planted a pecan tree. And I was impressed with how fast it grew. And we went away, to, we, we were there for about two years, we went to Pennsylvania for three years, we came back, the tree had been in the ground five years. And I, I drove by the house, when I'm in the area, I always drive by the houses I used to own and see what they look like. And this, this tree was massive. And then back tucked in was a dwarf peach that was massive. And I saw these two trees and I realized that while I was gone, those things grew. And I don't feel bad about that, but the more I think about that and the older I get, I can only do that so many more times. And you can only do that so many more times. And while all the movement that I had in my life was good for us and it worked out and it might for you and don't let me derail you, there's a piece of me that wishes that I could have just understood all of this stuff and found something similar to what I have now when my son was still in school and just said, just cruise on through school right here and had him grow up in a place like this. In the end, I think because my station in life was so weak when I first met my wife, that the movement was necessary to gain command of my life financially. And I had to do things to climb the ladder. And I think there's a place for that too. So you have to think about the totality of the way in your life. But to me, that's the ideal situation. We find the place we want to be. We use the capital as a down payment and we don't try to go too equity rich in it, but you know, maybe we, you know, maybe we go Uh, with an FH loan 3% down, and we save the capital for improvements. That's, that's a, a really valid thing to do coming into. That lets you look at houses totally different. Because a lot, it used to be this way. And you could still do this, but it's a lot harder now. You go in a house, you look at it, it's worth $140,000. That's what it's worth. That's what it's going to appraise at. It's got a lot of problems. But it's not the foundation's cracked in half. It's not there's asbestos hanging out of the roof. It's, it's not currently on fire. Uh, it doesn't have mold coming out of the walls. It just needs 
updating. It needs maybe a wall taken out. It needs maybe a new roof. It, it needs these certain things. But it appraises at 140 today. So that's what the bank will give you. Well, it used to be you could go in there. You could get quotes from contractors and basically take a home equity line of credit with your mortgage all rolled together. And it was relatively easy to do. And you could say, well, this is going to be a $200,000 home. When these improvements are made, here's all the paperwork. And banks would just throw $200,000 at you, assuming you qualified for that loan. And then your obligation was to see to it that these things happened. That's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to do now. Now you buy the house, and then you try to get the home equity line of credit in order to do the improvements, and it's, it's far more complicated than it was, let's say, 20 years ago. So with a big wad of cash, one can go into those situations and see the potential of a home. If you do this, very important, do not assume, oh, that's going to be about $20,000. Uh-uh, no. No, don't get in a hurry. Don't get in a rush. Remember, you're a dispassionate asshole when it comes to real estate. You have to be. You don't get emotional. You're a freaking Vulcan. Like you're a Vulcan that really doesn't give a shit even for a Vulcan. That's how you have to be, right? So you, you go in and you say, okay, I'm going to have a second showing set up with my real estate agent. I'm going to bring in a contractor that specializes in this. I'm going to get at least an estimated off-the-cuff bid from maybe one or two contractors on what this work's going to cost. You know, I'm not going to listen to my real estate agent go, well, you can just take this wall out. Most real estate agents are idiots. Not all. Don't get offended if you're not and you're an agent, but most are idiots. You can just take this wall out. Is that wall load-bearing? Well, I don't know. Well, then you don't know. Then you don't know. Don't just, like, oh, I can wave my freaking hand and it'll go away. That, that's the approach that I would take here, though. I would be looking for where I wanted to be. Sounds like your wife wants to blow this joint, and she probably doesn't want to blow it into another one she doesn't want to be in. Find the right place and take your time in doing this, and don't let anything feel like you're in a rush to this. The only thing that will happen by waiting a little longer is property values will probably continue to go up if they've been going up in your area for at least a while, long enough to find what the right place to be is. That's my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hi, Mr. Spirico. This is Tim from the Antelope Valley in California again. Um, I've been hearing a lot of talk about uh, pistol caliber uh, carbines, and um, I was wondering if you uh, if you heard anything, and mostly about the Keltec, sorry, and I was wondering if you heard anything about the Arrow survival rifles. Um, I'm curious about them. A little bit of history. I have a 10 millimeter 1911, and I really like the pistol, and I like the caliber. And I was wondering about getting a, uh, a carbine as a, a survival rifle type of thing for my bug out bag. Um, any comments or, or suggestions would be helpful. Thank you for all you do. Thanks. Bye. So whenever I hear the term survival rifle, my hackles go up. Uh, I had one of the, uh, the 22, uh, survival rifles that fit into the stock. I ended up trading it. Um, I didn't find it as being very practical. It's kind of cool, but it, when people looked at it, ooh, ah, but nobody really cared that much. Um, to make it really useful, uh, from a stamp, from a shooting standpoint, it really needs optics on it, and then it doesn't fold up the way it's supposed to, and what do you do with the scope and, Blah, blah, blah. And we can throw behind a truck, a seat for, you know, you know, impromptu squirrel shooting or whatever. Well, I can buy an old beat up bolt action 22 for 75 bucks at a gun show and that'll do that better. So survival rifles to me have always been, eh, I don't know. This thing's cool. This thing's cool. 
It kind of sort of looks like the AR-7 crossed with an AR-15, the AR-7 survival rifle, but it's much better. Uh, it's available in 9mm, it's available in .45, it's available in, in uh, uh, .40 Smith & Wesson, it's available in 10mm, and I believe it's also now or soon will be available in .357 SIG. That is an interesting thought coming out of that longer rifle barrel, but you may suffer with the SIG trying to do what you might want to do with a carbine because of the lower capacity case, you can't really go with good heavy bullet loads with the .357 SIG. The 40 uh, or the 10 millimeter out of this thing is a freaking sledgehammer. It's a 16 and a half inch barrel. And I have a video you can see today where a guy's doing some ballistics testing with some double tap ammo, 180 grains. And he's getting muscle velocities in the 1650 foot per second range out of it. And when I run that through a ballistics calculator, you're putting out over a thousand pounds of energy from a handgun round. And a 40 caliber handgun round at that. And in that, that, that 10 millimeter off the shelf ammo, you can get a lot more durable, um, heavy grade ammo than you can at 40 Smith and Wesson. This thing's cool. From the accuracy testing that I've looked at on it, you're talking groups of about two inches at a hundred yards. That is not earth-shattering, oh my god, look, it's on a dime accuracy that one expects out of a high-end bolt rifle. But out of a pistol caliber carbine, it, it doesn't match. I mean, my, uh, my 357 Magnum, uh, Ruger, little bolt 357 Magnum, that thing shoots about an inch. I mean, just over an inch, like 1.1 inches at 100 yards. Well, that's pretty damn impressive. But two inches is minute of person. It's minute of deer. Uh, it's definitely minute of hog. Uh, and I would see, you know, any of these rounds as being about 100 to 120 round outside range rounds. You can do it further, but you really shouldn't. If you need to shoot further, don't, don't use these. Um, the way it takes down is basically the barrel just comes off of it and it fits in a case. It's got a Pictini rail for, uh, for optics to go right on it. And I would definitely put optics on it. I mean, that's, that's the way I'd go with it. Um, and you know, fold it down. It'll fit in a, a small case. Doesn't look like a gun case. And maybe it's less of a survival rifle and more of a travel rifle. This whole survival rifle thing, this is this is my problem with this shit here. If you're going somewhere where you might need a gun to survive, take a freaking gun with you, right? And, and the concept of you're going to be lost out in the wilderness without a gun, but if you had one that folded, you wouldn't be, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It just doesn't. You know how I feel about the whole Red Dawn uh, psychotrophic drug-induced nonsense that some survivalists are running around. They think they're going to grab their bug-out bag and go fight the Blue Helmets or something. That shit's not going to happen. If it is, you don't want a freaking pistol-caliber carbine. You know, you would prefer to have something like an AR or an AK. But the concept of a takedown rifle, I think, is you know, survival sells shit sizzles, right? It's like the sizzle sells the steak. But the practical application of a takedown carbine that can be with you everywhere you go, so that when you do get that impromptu opportunity to go by your buddy's house that you didn't even think about that has pigs on his property and hunt, it's kind of cool. Um, being able to store it, like I said, behind a truck seat and it not look like something like there's a rifle back there or have it in a boat or something where maybe you are in a in kind of a wilderness scenario and you're better off with something that's a fold down or take down than a full size weapon. That, that could be from a, just a 
standpoint, though, when we take something like the 10 millimeter and we put it into a pistol caliber carbine, I don't really give a damn if it takes down or not. What we've got, again, is we've got a semi-automatic sledgehammer that reaches 100 yards. This thing would be dynamite on mid-size game. I would like to point out, I don't advise that you do this, and when you have a lot of money and you're a celebrity and you travel the world, you can do some shit just to show off, but Ted Nugent shot and killed a freaking Cape Buffalo with a 10-millimeter handgun. Let that, I mean, that is one of the toughest animals in the world. It probably wasn't the best idea, but it did work. And something that kills a Cape Buffalo can shoot a deer, an elk, a black bear, Frankly, a moose. Again, I wouldn't really advise you use this as your standard moose round, but what you are talking about with within its ranges and using proper ammo in the hands of the right shooter, something that can take almost all big game safely in North America. And while I wouldn't go shooting brown bears with it because I don't like to end up with my wool rich and buttons in a pile of poop somewhere, which is what can happen if you're not careful with a brown bear, um, it would be a hell of a lot better of a, a, a defensive weapon in, in you know, in that scenario, than a sharp stick. I would definitely say that. Um, but I would leave it, I would say that's not where to go with it. And I'd say elk and stuff like that. You're pushing it. You're pushing it. But freaking Elmer Keith shot elk with a 357 Magnum. It wasn't even a 357 Magnum yet. It was really heavily loaded 38 specials, which spawned, you know, spawned the interest. And, and, and end up created the 357 Magnum so that some fool didn't take some super duper plus P, which is I guess what you would have called it, and throw it in a freaking standard 38 and blow their freaking face off, right? So, so all these things can be done. If you like it, I'd have a hard time telling you not to get one. The uh, MSRP on them is in the 800 and something dollar range, but I see that uh, Cabela's, you can order them and go pick them up at the counter if there's a Cabela's near you, sell them in the mid 600s. And while I didn't see the option at Cabela's, I also did look up, there is a multi-caliber option where you get basically the rifle and three barrels for about 1200 bucks. And I think it's the 10, the 45, and the 9mm, if I'm not mistaken, from memory, that that multi-caliber set comes in. And it comes with multiple bolts so that everything will work and function. And it would seem to me, then, that through Arrow, who makes this thing, one should be able to adapt it to any of the options. So this might be the new handy rifle, though it's quite a bit more expensive. Because the handy rifle multi-barrel program and the handy rifle itself is gone. They don't make them anymore. And that means if you have a handy rifle, the NEF single shots, and if you're thinking about getting a barrel for it someday, sorry. And swapping barrels between the frames is not a good idea with that gun. I don't want to go off on that, Ty, right? Just... It real, it's been done safely by some that get lucky, but I, I've checked tolerances between different frames, and it's not a good idea. That's It's not like Thompson Center. Uh, but it seems like there's a lot that could be taken forward with this platform. It seems really cool. Because, you know, the mind wonders, couldn't one make this thing? I guess the, the current one's probably not long enough, but if they played with it, you could... Make 357 maximum in the damn thing. You certainly should be able to fit a 357 magnum in that chamber. Just thinking out of my head, I want one. That's my opinion of it. So I'm not going to tell you not to buy it. I don't know that I'll go do it, but I kind of want one. Hey Jack, I have a thought about uh, the guy that called in last week about the sewer fees. Uh, what I think it is is pensions. 
a lot of governments are starting to run out of money, and they're starting to put fees on anything and anywhere they can to get additional money in. A real good explanation of this was last week Max Kaiser did a show, and you can find it on YouTube, just YouTube, Max Kaiser, Predatory Promises. And fast forward to 12 minutes into it, and he starts talking about the collapse of the Dallas pension system. There's a run on it by firemen and policemen. They want to take their money out because it's better to get something now instead of nothing later. And as these governments, as these pension obligations are kicking in, they're starting to get more and more ridiculous in how they collect money to try and keep this stuff afloat. And he also talks about CalPERS and how that's also collapsing, and that's a trillion-dollar pension fund. So the um, we're going to start to see a lot of crazy stuff happening. It's only a matter of time before we start having a guy in a polo shirt and khaki pants knocking on us homesteaders' doors saying, Hi, we notice that you have livestock. We'd like to inform you that, unfortunately, you have to pay a livestock environmental impact fee. It's only $5 a month. Would you like to pay that, or would you like us just to put it on your property taxes? It's going to be ridiculousness like that. You know, and this is just the – it's not the economic collapse, I'd say. It's more like the economic crumbling. Very slowly we're seeing this stuff. All right, I look forward to, uh, to seeing how – what you have to say about this, especially being that, uh, you know, he talks about the Dallas pension fund, and that's right at your back door. So uh, have a great day, bud. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, uh, first of all, the uh, the piece by Matt Kaiser I haven't actually listened to, but for the benefit of the audience, I did go find it, and I put a link in the show notes. And I put a link in the show notes. It's one of those links on YouTube where you won't sit through the first half of his show, you'll go straight to what the caller is talking about here. And he does, I mean, I listen to a little bit of it, he brings up exactly the Dallas thing, which I'm well aware of, and it is true. There are a lot of people that have money in that fund that are pulling it out because the math says the fund will fail like in the next 8 to 10 years. And these people are taking what they can get while they can get it. And I, I do think that as you start to see cities, counties, municipalities with more and more fees, that pressure to maintain the pension funds that are failing is, is definitely one of the reasons for this. I mean, first of all, let's just say that there wasn't a pension program. I think they would still do it. Government will suck up every dime and nickel that it can I mean, government will suck up nickel so hard that two of them get rubbed together and don't turn into a dime, they'll turn into a quarter because they'll charge you a tax on the tax. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that, that the pension crisis that's beginning to rear its head in many municipalities is a aggravating circumstance in this, uh, this, this uh, mining for fees, basically. And, and, and that government in this country for a long time, treated the people like we were a farm. And when you run a farm, you, you certainly can't kill livestock faster than you replace them, right? You have to run it with a certain farmer's mentality. You can be an asshole farmer, and they were asshole farmers, but they are tax farmers. And increasingly, government is turning more and more to a mining model. We just extract and extract and extract with no real thought about the consequence of extraction, and it's because these these cities and these counties and these towns, these 
retirement packages, we're always seen as we don't really have to worry about that because that's in the future. Well, the future is here. The future is here. And these towns and these cities, these counties, all of these things, this is a, like a microcosm of Social Security without the ability to print money that the federal government has. Okay? And it's, pre it's predicated on growth. And the longer it runs, the greater the growth has to be to maintain it. So the way these pension funds work is you think it works, it's just like Social Security, you think it works this way. You work for XYZ City, uh, and they say that they are going to provide your pension. Maybe you make some contributions to it, and they make some contributions to it. And that money goes and sits aside in a little cube that's for, if your name's Tom, it's Tom's little, little compartmentalized cube of a pension fund. But the reality is, Tom's money, if he's paying anything in as part of it, and the county or the city's money, which is really the people's money that they stole, goes into a general pension fund, and that money's being used today to pay the pension obligations of yesterday. And hopefully there's enough left over to earn some type of a return. But today's worker is paying yesterday's retiree's pension. And because wages and pensions continue to rise, you have to grow the size of government to maintain a government pension. You cannot maintain a government pension if you maintain the same number of employees. You have to exponentially grow them. So when a town's a small town and it starts to grow and experience exponential growth, they can do this for a lot of generations, as long as it maintains. But sooner or later, it always tops out. How many people are going to live in Dallas? And the answer is only so many. And even with exponential growth in North Texas, most people that are moving to the Dallas-Fort Worth area are not living in Dallas or Fort Worth. They're living in Louisville. They're living in Carrollton. They're living in Farmer's Branch. They're living out here in Azle. They're living in White Settlement, which some people think is racist, even though it's about the color of the freaking rocks there. I mean, that, that, that's what's going on. So all of this influx of new human beings coming here isn't really affecting the coffers of the large cities. Now, how is this affecting me? Not very much. I live in Tarrant County. Tarrant County has a philosophy that if it doesn't, if it ain't a problem, let's not go make it into one. So we have a relatively small, as compared to many counties with a, a county seat the size of Fort Worth, county sheriff's department, and the county just does what it needs to do, and it's never tried to grow, outgrow itself, and therefore it's kind of maintained a bit of an equilibrium. So the books, at least the public books for Tarrant County, are pretty good. The books for Fort Worth, Fort Worth PD, and etc have problems very, very similar to Dallas. Now, I want you to think about something. Fort Worth and Dallas are pretty well-off cities. They don't have anywhere near the problems of places like Chicago, right, or Providence, Rhode Island, or Hartford, Connecticut, or, or you know, All of these other cities in these, you know, places where all these government workers are also union workers and they have much larger pensions and much larger compensation packages and things like that. So what is this going to look like as it begins to unwind all over the nation? And I'm back to what I talked to you guys about years ago, municipal defaults as well. Because the other way that all these municipalities are funding themselves is through the issuance of debt, municipal bonds. And the only way that they're funding that now is they, they maintain good... They're, they're playing the MasterCard Visa card game that, that people played in the 80s. 
You got as many credit cards as you could at once, and you use credit card A to pay off B to C to D to E. I remember even seeing a thing on, uh, on, on 2020 when I was a kid where this guy had like a filing cabinet of credit cards, and he had a system, and he had run it for like three years. And it was, he was going deeper and deeper in debt, but he was always able to get more credit. And they said, well, what are, the, what are you going to do if it comes to an end? And he said, when it comes to an end, I'll declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and this is all this guy was doing. Well, this is like that has a very bleak ending, but at least it only affects the idiot doing it, really. This is this is going to be big. And, and the concept of someone coming out and charging me a duck tax or something like that, it, 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 it's not out of the realm of possibility. It, it really isn't. But I'm more concerned about the overall economic impact on the country from things like this. And it's it's that's scary. That's really scary. Let's take another one. If you're on a W-2, you can buy a used gravel trailer for 600 bucks, put it in your backyard, rent it out to uh, to somebody that's living on the edge, and you've got rental property. And you can fill out the rental property form, Schedule E, and you can deduct any maintenance and repair expense, uh, auto mileage related to maintaining this, uh, and on and on and on. You've got a place to write stuff off. You have to pick up the 50 bucks a month that the old uh, geezer pays you that was sleeping under the bridge, but you have rental property now, and you get to deduct any expenses or ordinary necessary business expenses to maintain it. You might get away with something like this, but if it ever gets looked at by the IRS, there's going to be one or two uh, results. It will turn out that your attempt to pay less taxes was ineffective because you've charged some sort of rent. You've legitimately reported expenses that were actually related to the business, and because you've legitimately reported expenses actually related to the business, you had a loss, and all doing this has done is cost you money that you were able then to write off as a loss. Or you stretched it, and if you stretched it and wrote off things that don't directly pertain to the maintenance and upkeep of this trailer, then you will never survive an audit. You won't even survive a cursory audit, and you will end up with taxes and fee fees and, and penalties that will far exceed whatever you could have ever hoped to have gained by doing this. This does not sound like a good idea to me. Um, it also, you know, what are you going to charge somebody 50 bucks for a place to live? I think that if you're doing that, The, 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 the risk greater than the, because if you don't make a lot of money and you're a W-2 employee, um, your risk of being audited is exceptionally low. There's actually a chart you can look at that shows as your income goes up, the probability of audit and the percentage of probability of audit. And if you have a good accountant, they can run some things that determine whether or not that number actually fits you or if you've made it worse or by having no triggers, you've made it better. This is actually all fairly well-known numbers-based science, okay? Um, this how Because the, the IRS has to make decisions in some sort of dispassionate way. Uh, otherwise, they can legitimately be accused of targeting. So if they audit someone like a, a radio talk show host, uh, like a Rush Limbaugh, which they've done. Well, the state of New York, I think, is who's audited him. Um, but if you go after someone like that just because of who they are, 
without some sort of a dispassionate trigger, then you end up in a situation where even in our corrupt society, the, the taxpayer turn around and sue the federal government may very well be successful at it. So they have this dispassionate way of looking at it. So the odds of actually being audited, if you're, you, you could even just write that shit down and, and not even, not even exist. And you, you, you have fairly decent odds of getting away with it. But if you get caught, the penalty is quite severe. But the other thing is you're going to find some bum living under an overpass and rent him a trailer for $50 a month. I think that's a bigger risk. Now, the reason I played this call was, one, to point out once again that just because something creates a deduction doesn't mean it's a legitimate deduction. And this concept that people go into a business that actually loses money on purpose for a tax deduction is ludicrous. If you want to lose money for a tax deduction... Found a business, and, and I will charge you money as your consultant. I will give you terrible consulting, but I'll take your money. You can write it off, and I'll take all the and I'll pay the tax on it. I'll be happy to. Okay, so that's just not the way it works. And then the concept of creating tax deductions just for the create that is a dangerous game. Entrepreneurs end up in a business where because they're paying expenses related to their life out of their business. They they earn, spend, and then pay tax on the remainder. But that's by running a legitimate business with significant cash flow that does generate significant tax uh, consequences. And if you're doing that you're, and you're smart, you're running everything through a qualified CPA. In my instance, while I use a um, uh, like a franchise H&R Block, the, I, I deal with one person there. Now, I might have a different preparer do some things on our paperwork, but when it comes down to it, the guy that represents us is a gentleman named Richard. He's not just a CPA. He's a tax attorney. So when I say tax attorney and CPA, I got one dude that's both. And we got a nasty gram from the IRS, and as part of our you know fees to, to them annually to do our work, he wrote a slam-dunk letter that made him go away last year. We didn't have to do anything except send a letter in, and they just shut up and went away. And that's the way you run tax deductions with a business. You don't do shit just for the purpose of creating a deduction. You would be better off if you're not worried about you know paying all your taxes to buy a couple travel trailers and rent them out for a couple hundred dollars a piece cash money, put the cash money in your pocket, and it's between you and the fence post, okay, and the guy that gave you the 200 bucks. That, there's almost no risk of ever getting caught for. It's illegal as shit. It is, it is not reporting income. But if some guy's paying you $150 to $200 a month to live in a travel trailer, there's no paper trail there. If that's cash money, that, that, it, it, now, I, I'm not suggesting you do it, okay, because I can't suggest you do it. But I'm saying that the risk reward ratio is much higher there. It's much higher there. You can't depreciate the damn thing. It's not worth anything. I mean, that's another way that we make money with real estate is we go buy a house that's worth quarter million dollars and we depreciate it and create a, a depreciation expense against it. We're having cash flow come out of it, but we can make it look like we're losing money. And it's a phantom loss. And when it comes time to sell that property, as long as we buy a property that's worth more money and roll into it with a rollover, we defer the taxes yet again. Now, that's not tax evasion, right? That's working the tax code as it was written. And it's very important 
that anybody out there that's thinking about doing anything with a business, that you do the business for the sake of the business and the tax benefits are icing. They're icing on the cake. They're not the cake. The business and the cash flow and the income and the equity build and the freedom and, and the wealth, that's the cake. And then we just are able to make the cake bigger because the icing reduces the amount of cash flow out to the federal government. But for all our, our very spot-on tax strategy, I still pay a shitload of income taxes every year. A shitload. And I will continue to do so because while I feel it's extortion and while I feel they're stealing my rightfully earned property, I'd like to keep the rest of it in my lifestyle. And we live in a state a society where that's the way it is right now. Be careful. Now, becoming a landlord through the creative use of some fixed-up travel trailers, low-cost rent you should be paying taxes on, just saying, That actually is an interesting way to develop some cash flow or tiny houses or whatever, as long as you live in a place where it can be done. As long as you live in, I could put 10 little travel trailers on the back of my property here and I can't nobody say shit because I'm unincorporated. You do that down the road from here and you'll have the departments of making you sad show up. The HOA blue hairs, the, 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 the city people and, and what have you because that's where you're living. So you got to think about that. Anyway. Please be careful with this shit about, well, I can create a tax deduction, you know, if you're not creating a legitimate expense. And now, mileage. Mileage is one of those ones that does work to your advantage. You have to have enough cash flow in the business, and you have to be reporting cash flow. You know, you, 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 CPA tax attorney, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Austin in Central Texas. L-E-O, again. Um, I'm calling actually in reference to a individual who wrote in about his daughter having a hard time being bullied. The only thing I would add to what you said is get law enforcement involved now. And the reason is, and as much as I'm against getting law enforcement involved in child rearing, in a government school system specifically, You need a paper trail. Even if law enforcement can't do anything for you now, everything that law enforcement does is public record. So if there's no criminal offense against that child, that is a criminal record establishing a history. And that is the only, the only reason why I say get them involved now. Uh, I typically don't advocate law enforcement involvement in child rearing. However, in this particular situation with what's kind of going on in, the, in, in any school system, it's almost the only avenue that you have. And at least that documentation and that paper trail is worth it. Uh, in the end, I can't tell you how many cases I've seen go one way or the other versus documentation. So that's just my two cents. You know how against I am involving law enforcement and pretty much anything, even though I'm a cop. But that's my two cents in it. Get that paper trail started. Thank you for everything you do, Jack, and I hope that's at least helpful. I think he's absolutely right. And I think it's also situational. Uh, for those that maybe didn't hear the earlier show that, that, that he's referring back to, 
I want you to understand the level of seriousness here. This girl that's being picked on by another girl was was telling other girls, you need to kill her. You need to kill her. And other threats of extreme violence uh, like that. So we're talking about not you suck, not making fun of somebody's clothes, whatever, but threats of violence, uh, physical altercations, and things like that. And in any instance where I have seen like an ongoing problem, the advice I've always heard from law enforcement, whether it was to me or whether it was to somebody else that I was privy to, is exactly what you just heard. Because as this situation escalates, at any point that it actually does become a criminal matter, the record matters. If it ever is to the point where you end up deciding, well, I'm going to sue over this, all of this matters. Um, at any point you decide you want to file charges, all of this matters. If it ever ends up in front of a judge or a magistrate, all of this matters. It's either there and documented or it's not. And you writing it down in your little pad folio does not make it documented. It may actually even be somewhat considered in a court of law, but it will not be the same as public record documents from law enforcement. My concern about this, I, I know damn well if I made that call for my kid and, and Austin here showed up that I don't have anything to worry about. But there's been recent events where people have called the police for help with their kids and somebody got shot by a cop when there was no weapon involved on the other side or a cop shows up at somebody's house and shoots a freaking dog. Um, so I look at it this way. Anytime that I call the police on a situation, I'm creating a potentially lethal encounter. Now, it might be a very small chance of that, and most police do their job well, and most police aren't pussies that shoot a Jack Russell Terrier because it growled at them. Look, I mean, if we're going to put down the people that do that, we've got to be honest about the people that don't. We can't shit all over the good guys. Uh, you know, I think it's as wrong to shit on the good guys as to patronize actual victims with calling scumbags bad apples. I think both sides are equally wrong. So we've got good cops out there that are doing the best they can in the situation that they're in. And I know damn well if I'm a cop and you call me because of a bullying situation in school, that is not what I signed up for the job for. But if I'm a good cop, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my job. And I will say this, too. It is very possible that when one of these young little bullying bitches or one little bullying pricks looks eye to eye with a law enforcement officer that says, you know, I don't want to have to come out here and talk to you about this again, that they'll at least go find somewhere else to direct their negative energy. Because they've pushed on this one, and this one pushed back. And this one pushed back with more force and authority than they ever thought they could. I don't like it. I don't like it. But we don't live in a world where this problem can be solved the way that it should. Because the way that this problem should be solved is I should be able to go over to this person's parents and say, you're going to freaking fix this or I'm going to hand your ass to you. And that'll just line me in jail. Because I honestly feel that way. If your kid's attacking my child, if they're physically threatening them, if they're harassing them, And if my child's done everything to get away from your kid and your kid won't, then it's your job to fix it. And damn it, if you won't, I'll fix it for you. And since I can't go beat up a 14-year-old, I'll come kick your ass. And I guarantee. And if I can't kick your ass, guess what? I bet you I know some people that can. I, I bet you I... Because, like I said, everybody out there in the world has somebody else that can kick their ass. 
There, there's, there's 50 guys walking down the street, and 25 of them I can kick their ass, and 25 of them probably can kick my ass. That's just the way it works. But what it makes me think of, and I know this sounds bad, but it's the truth. You know, one night, my buddy and me, this guy named Brian, and he's the father of the young man that killed himself, by the way, over shit like this. Uh, myself, Brian, this guy, Tim, and another guy, I think we called him Tex. I think that's the guy that was, there's four of us. And, uh, my girlfriend at the time, this is before Dorothy and, and, and the other two guys' girlfriends and Brian's wife. So there's eight of us and we're there and we're out, out on the lake and we're at this lake called Lake Louisville and it's kind of dark and we're just coming in. We've been out kind of partying in a boat, you know, we're young and that's what we did back then. And Brian's standing with one foot on the dock and one foot on the, 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 the rail of the boat. It's a no wake zone. And some jackass comes in, planed up, and Brian almost falls in the water. So I said, hey, dude, you need to chill your shit out. You shouldn't be coming in here like that. He gets out of the boat, and he looks at me. He goes, what do you think? You're a badass or something? And he was a pretty big dude. And I said, no, I don't. He says, well, then what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm pretty sure the four of us can kick your ass. And that ended that. That ended that real quick. He knew he was wrong, and then he knew he was outgunned. And I think when people are using violence against others, sometimes at least the potential for the return of violence is what shuts it off. Well, we can't do that. And what we've been forced to do with this bullying shit is do the one thing that most of us that are free-thinking, liberty-oriented people hate. Use the force of the state. But my, my question, see, and the reason I'm willing to say do it, I don't have, I've been, I've been on this problem mentally for four years. I'm a pretty smart guy. Almost any problem that I take on mentally, even if the, 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 the solution isn't easily implemented, I can come up with a solution to it that when people look at it and go, that would work, or at least that would make it a lot better. I don't have a good solution to this. My solution to this, based on the people I've known who've had children either seriously damaged or lost them to suicide okay, for this, is whatever it takes to protect the child that's the victim. And, and whatever it takes to jerk a knot in the ass of the aggressor and say, this is enough. Go bother somebody else. Go bother somebody that's a little bit bigger and you get your ass handed to you and maybe you'll learn a lesson in life. And, and I wish I could make that person stop bullying everybody, but I can't. But I'm going to do every damn thing to make sure I can stop them from bullying my kid. And, and I, I really think that The only way to solve this is something the state school system will never do. We need to empower the children to self-police this. Because it did happen informally when I was in school, and it doesn't happen anymore. And when kids do stand up for the one being bullied, they end up in trouble. Instead of patted on the back. Where I know that like some of the coaches I had and teachers I had in school that had I not stood up for someone, they would have gotten in my shit about it. They would have said, you know what? You know what, man? You could have done something about that, and you didn't step in. Why didn't you step in? I had a shop teacher one time that told me we had an ass clown in shop class that was going to get somebody hurt. He was, like, pushing people's elbows and shit while they were working on machines. He said, if he ever does that to you, lift him up, put him up against the wall, and hit him in the gut. Don't hit him in the face. Hit him in the gut. I'll send you to the dean, but I'll take care of it. Never happened, but I mean that's a tr not the the and never like the guy never did it to me. I never got the opportunity to do it, but 
but the, 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 the conversation between me and the shop teacher happened. He was the one who also told me if your, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle when we were debating 308 and 3006. He was a good teacher. I'm sure he'd get fired today. So if it takes involving the state, screw it. Involve the state. And like Austin said, get that paper trail down because I've been told that time and time again by law enforcement. Hi, Jack. This is the Tactical Redneck. Now on what I am calling Walking to Freedom, Cuba edition. So I know you gave me an awesome shout-out the other day. Um, so a quick update really quick before I get to my actual question. I've been here for about a month and a half. The quarters here are all right. Um, I've got a shop that has been neglected for a little while, so I'm kind of getting worked to death. But I started getting involved with a couple of groups on base. Um, one of them is a Jeep club, even though I drive a 1980s model Toyota. Kind of a red-headed stepchild there, but they're doing some awesome stuff, and they've been able to do some things like using some of the tank trails to take off-road trips, which I've never seen on any base ever. But they do a lot of stuff as far as cleaning up some of the little local recreational areas and stuff, so they've managed to get an in with command here on the base. But the big thing that I've managed to get involved with here is the plant nursery. And for those of you don't, who don't know, if you've never been on a big base, it's kind of like a giant HOA, except for you have no vote, and it's run by the federal government. So how could you possibly walk to freedom here? Well, I have been given a 17 by 17 foot plot of dirt within the little plant nursery and told I can grow whatever I want. So guess what I'm going to be trying to grow? Anyway, Jack, my question is, this in particular plot of dirt is extremely compacted. It's extremely dried out, and it's been baked in the Cuban sun. Um, it's in the month and a half that I've been here, it's rained three times, and it's enough to create a couple of water puddles, but not enough to give everything a good drenching. So I've started breaking the ground up a little bit with a pickaxe and a hoe. So my question is, what would you recommend as far as trying to get some initial nutrients into the ground as well as some, some type of covering, like using cardboard and mulch, to try to get that ground to retain some of the water? Anyway, this has been Tactical Redneck reporting to you live from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Thanks, Jack. Bye. So, um, first of all, I just want to say congratulations on your new life. I know that it was a long road, and deciding to go back into service was a, a, a difficult decision for you, and, and, and I think it ended up being the right one. And I don't know that I could have done it at your place in life. I think I was pretty much done when I was done. So, you know, thank you for being willing to do that. Um I didn't know that Guantanamo Bay, the part that we have, was as big as it is. I'm like, you're on Jeep trails, and what the hell's going on? I always saw Guantanamo Bay as kind of this little bitty chunk, you know, with like a military prison on and a base and some shit and the boats, and that was it. And it's like, you know, like like a little bit bigger than Alcatraz or something. I, I don't know. And so I, I looked it up, and, and Guantanamo Bay, the part we control, is 45 square miles. Now, a lot of it's water, but a lot of it isn't. So I learned something. Thank you. Um, compacted ground. So 
I think you're in a position where where breaking the soil and digging it up and double digging is your best bet to go quickly. Uh, organic matter mulch and compost. I, I wouldn't cardboard sheet mulch this uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, when you do that, you need to keep things really moist. That's really a cool temperate climate solution. It's something that's designed to keep weeds down, um, and it's something that's more of a long longer term solution. So you're, you, you have plenty of time. You know, you're stationed there. You probably want to get some sort of instant gratification. I would, with pick and shovel, double dig it and turn in it whatever organic matter you can get and, and then keep from compacting it further. That's what I would do. And then compost, 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 mulch. Mulch, 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 compost and mulch, compost and mulch. When you get new compost, pull your mulch back, throw your compost on the ground, put your mulch back over it. What are you going to use? Whatever you can find there. But, I mean, as is, 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 is complicated as everybody always thinks this problem is, it's always disturb the soil, add organic matter, keep it mulched, and don't let it dry out. But that's it. So I won't make it any more complicated than that. Yeah, you can plant, you know, cover crops that are deep, like, you know, daikon rat or something. That's just not going to grow in Cuba, especially on bare compacted soil. That's not going to happen. You know, you need to get in there and disturb that soil, and you're going to have to do it mechanically at this point, especially 17 foot by 17 foot. I'm sitting in a room right now that's like 10 by 12, I think. Maybe it's 11 by 14. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a little bit smaller. I mean, no matter how bad it is, as long as it ain't rock, you know, in a couple weeks anyway, you could have the whole thing double dug. And if you're not sure what I mean by double dig, just Google double dig gardening technique. And just, it's sequential and you start in one spot and keep going forward. Do that. that that's what I would do. And I would dig it down at least a foot. And it might suck. But hey, you know what? You're surrounded by a bunch of other guys there. Buy some beer. I bet you can come over and get a lot of picks swinging for you know some beers and some uh, some burgers on the grill or something like that. That's not that big an area. Little work party and uh, and, and the good news is that soil is good soil down there. Now you're gonna have to think about what you grow because the further you go to the tropics, the more you can grow kind of fruity things, and the less you're gonna grow vegetable things. So tomatoes and peppers and shit like that probably do really good there. Your greens and stuff, it's going to be a lot more difficult. So you might want to grow some tom uh, uh, tomatillos. Uh, tamarillo will grow there. You can start growing some, you know, some perennials. And you can start growing certain things that we think of as annuals. As preppers will be perennial for you. So, so you know, pineapple, stuff like that. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. So that that's the way I'd focus it. But double dig it and then add compost and mulch. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Kenny from West Michigan. I'm super excited to tell you uh, some good news about me. Um, Long-time listener, uh, and you have inspired me so much to finally get shit done and get out and start a business. Um, I'm accepting your 100000 uh challenge, and uh, after listening to you, uh, you talk about the woman who built the house by herself with her family doing something big, I've finally done it. I put to use my woodworking skills and started a, a, a furniture business. And it's been going for all of 48 hours, and I've already had six people contact me with 
stuff they want built. Um, I've already drawn up quite a few, and people are loving it. Um, so, yeah, uh, really, I couldn't have done it without your inspiration. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, so once I really get going, I will pop in with an update. cool thing about it is um, I'm doing everything open source, so all my builds are going to be documented on YouTube so that not only I'm building these things, but anyone else can build them as well. Um, so my whole thing is I want to create something awesome with someone else um, and make people's dreams come true. So, yeah. Again, thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, talk to you later. Just had a real quick thought. You are in the military there. Um, you may be able to finagle something to get some piece of equipment out there to tear that ground up for you, you know, a, a backhoe or something like that, just the teeth in the ground. We go back and forth a few times through the whole thing, make that really quick work on that last call. But on this one, badass. And, and I want to say I think this is the kind of business that will have legs even in an age of automation. I do think you'll be able to have a 3D printer print a coffee table. But I don't think you'll you know, produce a handmade-from-wood table. And I can see where people would be very attracted to handmade furniture today. Because even if I have a lot of money, when I go out to buy shit, it's so hard to find anything that's actually made out of wood anymore. Uh, we recently, after many years of having some really old, worn-out furniture, went and updated all the furniture in our master bedroom. And we spent a long time before we found something that we really wanted because one of the things that I insisted on, we're not buying veneer, we're not buying something made out of press wood, this shit needs to be made out of wood. And even with a fairly significant budget, because we saved up a long time for that one thing, we're going to, you know, we, we had actually had a, one of our, our, our the, the fixtures on one of our beds had actually broken. We had put the, 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 the uh, box tree and mattress on the floor for a while. And we're like, we're just not doing it until we can do it all at once. We're going to save up for this one thing. When we had the money and decided, okay, now it's time to go do it, we we went to, I think, like 20 different furniture outlets before we finally found what we thought we both liked and thought the quality was there on. And it's difficult to find. When we bought uh, the table that we have in our dining area, I was at this this uh, store, and I had a pen light. You know, my little, actually, Streamlight Stylus Pro light, my little EDC light. And I'm underneath all the tables shining this light up under them. And this salesman goes, what are you looking for? I said, I'm looking for one made out of real wood. I want the same grain on the bottom as we got on the top. I, you know, I could tell. We don't have any. And lo and behold, I found the one that he had that was actually made out of real wood. And, and on top of that, we liked it. We ended up buying it. I'm like, you don't know your own product, dude. Get out of here. Give me somebody else. I mean, seriously, I am that way with salespeople. I'm a dick. I have to tell you what a dick my, my buddy David is to car salespeople in the future, but I think this is a great business, and I think it's the kind of thing that is going to have some legs even in this age of automation. I think what's going to happen is the the main hit is going to be taken in all of the mass production and mass service industries. So if I'm going to Chili's. To get you know some uh, southwestern egg rolls, which have nothing to do with eggs, and a burger, I don't really give a shit about the level of service. And if you work for Chili's, I'm sorry, but I don't. And if I did, I wouldn't be at Chili's. You know, I'd be at, at, at Tim Love's restaurant in, in, in Fort Worth called Lonesome Dove if I want service. So if I'm ordering from a kiosk, 
and one person can can wait on twice as many tables and just brings the food out and walks away and whenever and I don't have to talk to anybody I don't care but when I have someone come into town that I want to spoil kind of a business relationship or something with then I'm going to go to one of these places that's really high end you know I'm going to go to Three Forks Steakhouse or something like that it's, it's the high end restaurant that will survive as far as its employees because people are going to go there for that. And I think that's one of the advantages or one of the op advantage is not the right word. One of the opportunities that exists in this world of automation is that growing food like Curtis Stone does in backyards and spin farming will be able to compete with, with food that's going to cut jobs in the major agricultural sectors. I don't think people realize how many people are employed by that. And it's not just illegal aliens, though there's a lot of them. When it comes to things like corn and wheat, you know, one person's doing the job that a thousand people did 150 years ago. But when it comes to a lot of other things like lettuce and, and uh, you know, uh, corn that's, that's corn that's being picked for use as sweet corn and things like that, there's a lot of hand labor still in there. And they're developing automation methods to make, you know, picking oranges, for instance, and things like that. That's that's all done with manual labor still. But they're, they're actually developing robots that could actually say that orange is ripe. And, and so the, the mass service sector, including organic, is just going to have its employees decimated. But the fact that this guy is growing that food in my backyard or my neighbor's backyard or down the street, that still has appeal. Not to the broad market, but there's opportunity there, and only so many people will ever do it. These are the types of things, these little niches, where people want to do business with another person they know by name, I think is where a lot of entrepreneurial activity is. And that doesn't mean don't go big with business either. It just means some people don't want to. Some people don't want to. I've said before, the reason TSP has a finite level that it can grow to is I don't want to ever have another employee for the rest of my life. I just don't. I want to keep it a manageable size that I can run myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. If I wanted to grow this thing into something huge, I would have, had, I would have built a team of employees six years ago when we really started our first momentum curve. And, and I would have take in charge of the overall operations of the business, and I would have run the microphone. But I would have had all of my daily shows prepared for me, outlines, briefings, and I would have walked in, and I would have sat down, and I would have went through my briefing, and I would have said, remove this, don't ever put something like that on there again, or I don't want to talk about this today, bump that to Wednesday, get me another story, okay, you got my stuff ready to go, click, and I would have run the show. And I would have said, you know, this person, you're in charge of customer service. Somebody has a problem with the membership or has a question for me or whatever, answer it the way you think I would answer it. And I probably could have built the business bigger and faster and, and, and went on terrestrial radio with it and maybe satellite radio with it and things like that if I had taken that approach. But then I wouldn't have the relationship with this audience. And that's why I can compete with people that have 4 million listeners on, on syndicated terrestrial radio. And an author comes on this show and sells more books talking to 150,000 people than he does going on terrestrial radio and talking to 4 million people. Because you guys believe me, you trust me, and I'm part of your existence because I actually give a shit about you. And that's, 
that is an opportunity for entrepreneurs right now to deal with customers that say, this was made by Mike. This was grown by Tom. I learned this from Jack. And they feel that they know you, not because you've created an aura, not because you've created a facade, but because you truly have told them who you are. You truly have shared yourself with them, whether it's through a microphone where you actually reveal things about your life the way that I do that most people don't, or because you put your heart and soul into a piece of furniture that when that person looks at it, they say, there's something about that that's different because it is made by hand, truly. And I know the story of the wood behind that furniture, where it came from. Things like that, that's tough for automation to compete with. And I'll tell you what else is tough for anybody to compete with is your competition. You can go out and start a podcast tomorrow talking about all the stuff that I do. You can even be successful with it. But it's going to be difficult for you to compete with me because you can't be me. You're going to have to be yourself. If you try to be me, you'll fail, in fact. And that is what you really want in a business, something that's not easily replicated, but has a emotional connection with your customer. I've bought a lot of furniture in my life. And when it reaches the end of its usefulness for me, we generally donate it to someone like Goodwill. I have no emotional attachment to it whatsoever. But if I have somebody hand make me an end table or a coffee table or a bed frame, and I get to a point where, for one reason or another, just isn't for me anymore, I'm going to take some extra care to figure out where it goes to next, and I'm going to tell the story. And everybody that walks in and says, oh, this is a lovely table. Right? If they come in and tell me now, oh, I like this table. I think we got it at Ashley's or was it Rooms to Go? I'm not sure. But if Mike made that table or Tom made that table, let me tell you about the table. We went down to his workshop and picked out, told him what we want to do. We had this extra stuff done like this. And he said we could either get it in maple or walnut. And we chose walnut because it's got these nice grains and all. Who is this guy? You see where that goes. Marketing is telling a story. Effective marketing is when other people tell your story for you. Sounds like you're off to a good start. I'm very glad to hear it. Keep it up and keep us posted. Jack, how are you? Uh, this is Justin from Utah. Hey, uh, got a question for you. I'm really getting into aquaponics. Uh, I'm looking for a little bit of advice on maybe uh, incorporating it with a traditional pond, backyard pond type water feature. Uh, you know, I, I I see the uh, all the designs that I see are the IBC totes in different uh, different various containers. Uh, but I really like to make it a, a part of the landscaping of my home and really make it look uh, look pretty nice. Um, yeah, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts on doing that. Um, you know, I'm just curious to see what you say. Thanks. You definitely can do that. Um, there's no reason not to. Let's start out with why people use IBCs. There's a few reasons. They have very large capacity. Uh, I think 270 to 330 gallon. I have two 330 gallon tanks in my system. And whenever you fill up any kind of a pond or tank or anything like that, you generally don't fill it up to the top. So the deeper it is, the more volume you can have even with some headspace. And in any kind of an aquaponic system, you have water coming out, and then it's filling or going through some sort of medium and returning. 
So especially if you're doing ebb and flow beds, right, uh, which or flood and drain, however you want to call it, which I think you should have some of those in your system because not just what you can grow with them, because I've seen some real magic about what those things do, honestly, um, but because of the incredible habitat for your good bugs in your system, right? And and they just overall improve the efficiency and output of the system, in my view, even if you're going to do most of your stuff with floating raft or wicking beds or flow through wicking beds or steady stream or whatever. That ebb and flow has so much value. So if we have ebb and flow, and let's say that we have three beds that hold, uh, well, with, with media and all, they're 100, 100 gallon beds, but they're holding 50 gallons of water before they flow. So they, uh, they, 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 they come up and they have 50 and they dump 50 gallons and they fill up and they dump 50 gallons. Conceivably, if they all go off at the same time, you can have a fluctuation in your system of 200 gallons and your battery Right, which is your lowest tank in the system or the com combination of multiple tanks at the same system, have to be able to handle that flow. So while we use a great big tall um, IBC tank, that thing can ebb and flow a foot, foot and a half, and there's still plenty of water on its low point and still plenty of headroom at its high point. Because what happens if it can't handle it every time there's a major outflow You exceed the capacity and you lose water, and eventually you end up with not enough water in the system, and the float valve on the pump shuts off, and then your whole system shuts down, and you're sad. Okay, So that's that's one reason. Not the only reason, but they're also affordable. They're readily available. You can get them in food grade. There's all those other great things about them. They're also a reasonable size of, of water to offset with your grow beds. I've said this before, and people have disagreed with me, and they're never people who are actively doing aquaponics. They're people that watch YouTube videos. Uh, or they have one little aquaponic system, and they really don't know yet. An aquaponic system is an overstocked fish tank that is, that is, is made able to maintain its balance through the use of vegetation, which harvests the extra. In other words, we have to find an equilibrium here. And if we don't produce fish waste in excess relative to the, whatever media and whatever plant life is there, the plants can't get enough nutrient to grow well. And if the plants and the media there that's, that's doing all of this biological activity wasn't there, the fish would literally piss and shit themselves to death because they're overstocked. Because if you don't think that you can set up a tank system with no real filtration in it and have fish live and be healthy and have good clean water, you're wrong. I've been doing it for three years. I got 200, 470-gallon steel round stock tanks buried in the ground, one higher than the other. Water comes out of one, goes up to the other, flows back down. There is no filter in that system. There's no, there's no ebb and flow beds. There's no circulation filter. There's no swirl tanks. There's no nothing. There's plants, aquatic plants, duckweed and some other things, and pickerel, rush, and stuff like that, and some pots of mint and stuff like that, but it's not an aquaponic system. But if I go and I, I, I dump 250, 300 tilapia in both of those, they'll actually be fine for a while until they get bigger, and that waste will exceed the capacity that system has to do away with itself. Now, if I take that and put that through a whole row of beds for aquaponics, and the plants start using it, and the ebb and flow's going and all that, all of a sudden I can overstock technically 
but I've now made it where I'm not overstocking. Now I have a stocking density that works because that's offsetting. So why do I bother to explain all that? When you start talking about doing ponds, well, then you have to think about this. What's the total volume of water? What's the total volume of water? And how much grow bed do I need in relation to that water? So when our system is done being built, we will have 12, 13, 14, probably about 16 beds at least total, the way we've kind of worked it out, off of just two IBCs. Which, yeah, they're 330s, but you want to work it out, you're probably looking at about 550 gallons of water in the IBCs. There's water in the raft beds, there's water in the, in the, the bottom of the wicking beds and stuff like that, so it's, it, it's, there's more, but water back to the IBCs, you're probably looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 550 gallons. So that's what we're working with, it's moving, a 550 gallon pulse. And that's how much grow bed we need. So if you go and put in, you know, four or five small ponds on your property and you end up with 10,000 gallons of water, you can't get enough grow bed, okay, to do aquaponics in a way that actually is aquaponics, where there's enough nutrient to feed the plants and enough plants to keep the fish from killing themselves, There's a very, you're going to have to understock compared to an aquaponic system. You think about it that a lot of times these aquaponic systems, people are putting 300 tilapia in a 300 gallon tank of fish per gallon. And it's not even holding 300 gallons because again, there's an ebb and flow there. And as the fish grow, we start harvesting some a little bit young because even then their volume gets to be too much waste. So you can do it, but you got to really think about it. Now, let me explain some other part of this. As long as you don't ask your aquaponics side to do more filtering than it's capable of, and we don't significantly overstock the system, you can grow food in an aquaponics-like environment. You may occasionally have to do some, what would we call the word slipping from me right now, um, foliar feeding. Okay, so then we're going to take something like a Garrett juice product that we can spray directly on the plant, and the plant can take the nutrient in, uh, or very, and it gets very shallow into the top of a grow bed so that we're not saturating it. Or we can put a little bit of nutrient straight into the system and let it go through the system. But if we put too much in, we're going to start killing our fish. We're going to throw our water out of balance. Aquaponics is all about a balance. So the answer is you certainly can, and maybe you should, But you just have to think about, so what you want to do is you want to go learn more about aquaponics and say, and say to yourself, self, how much grow bed, how much wicking bed do I need to offset this water? Because it is possible that you could put a lot of it in in that type of an environment. With a flow-through wicking bed, you could make a 50-foot long, okay, a 50-foot long thing that looks like a raised bed in the ground, but it's half gravel or it's half lava rock and you've got uh, basically a return cycle going where there's constantly water from your ponds moving through there. We might do that here. That could happen. We will see. Okay? Um, so that then that starts to be more, you know, you can have more and more water. And you can use pond water in an aquaponics-like environment and grow great produce. But again, if you're going to rely on the aquaponics as your, your, your primary 
to sole source of nutrient, it's it, you've got to have a balance between grow area and water. And you, you technically have to overstock your system as you grow more and more. And then you have to grow more and more as you overstock your system. Because uh, what a lot of people think is, well, I, I'm living on a, a two-acre lake, and I'll just pump water out of the lake and do aquaponics. Well, you can do it, but you're, you're going to have to supplement the nutrient to the plants. It's not going to get enough nutrient out of a body of water that, that large, again, unless it's a huge amount of grow bed and it's overstocked. That's, that's the best way to think about that. Hi, Jack. This is Matt up here in Casco, Maine. Um, I was wondering what you know about cellaring produce and preserving produce, and if you could offer any sort of information on the show about that. I know you've been talking a lot about pantry stuff lately, um, but I have a small homestead, and we grow some CFAs and sell on the side of the road, and I'd like to find a way to build different stores than just pantry goods. So if you can offer any information about that, that would be great. Thank you, and I like your show. Well, traditionally, this would have been done in uh, a root cellar type environment, uh, but you, you, in the end, what you need is a cool uh, environment. And so most people that are doing farm-scale produce production use a walk-in cooler. And, and that is the, the, the easiest answer. They're also quite expensive. Um, and this kind of lines up with something that I'll be doing this year as a project that there'll be lots of information put out on YouTube about. I will be building my own walk-in cooler instead of buying one. And the reason I'm going to be doing that is the folks at a place called CoolBot reached out to me and they provided me with a CoolBot. What is a CoolBot? It's a little controller box that allows you to basically control a standard window-style unit air conditioner such that it will chill a room almost to freezing. You can't get to freezing, but you can get you know 38 degrees, 40 degrees, 36 degrees, things like that out of it. You have to build a very well-insulated room, <clears throat> and then there's a limitation to how big that you can build them, and then you size the air conditioner to the environment. But every bit of it has to be insulated. But the cost versus building or, or buying just a straight walk-in cooler, you can save three to four to five thousand dollars or more uh, by building out of materials that you can mostly pick up at just a uh, a Lowe's or a Home Depot. And it's incredibly important that the insulation be done properly. Uh, I'll have a link to their website today, and they give complete specifications, exact materials, and things like that of how to build a system like this. And like one of the more important things that I've learned already reviewing uh, those materials is <clears throat> you don't want to build a floor that is like basically a framed floor because then you get cool, uh, you get, you know, loss through the, the, the wood itself. So you want to lay foam board insulation flat on your slab or flat on your ground and then build on top of that um, with, you know, ply right down on top of that sandwich flat. Um, which is not the way I would have done it without them. One thing I really like about them is they provide awesome support. Uh, they sent me this uh, cool bot, and they said, when you get ready to do your build, uh, they gave me a gentleman's name. He will be your, your basically your, your, your specifications engineer. Any questions you have, you just send them to him, and he'll, he'll say, yeah, that will work, or no, don't do that, or change it to this, or what have you. Uh, they've sold literally tens and tens of thousands of these things over the years. They have an incredible uh, reputation, 
I've seen them built <clears throat> like I'm going to do, like inside and out building. I've seen them built into insulated uh, uh, trailers. Uh, that's another option that would make it uh, possible to make it mobile. Uh, you find the right trailer and then just insulate it. Uh, there's just a tremendous uh, amount of flexibility that you can do with these things. And I think if you're if you're going to go the walk-in cooler route, I can't see spending so much money to get less space, right? I mean, when when you look at what you get out of one of these uh, these cool bots, it's it's pretty amazing. It also leads me to another possibility. This would be a target of opportunity. If you can find someone that has an effed up walk-in cooler, the motors don't work anymore or whatever, and it's basically considered junk at this point, the box is perfect. And you may be able to take an acetylene torch and cut yourself a hole and pop in an air conditioner and get a cool bot and bazinga, you're going. Now, what are the odds you'll find this? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know the guy I get my quail from <clears throat> found a commercial quality incubator, and that was exactly the, 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 the shape. All of the internals were shot. It was just worn out. It had been used forever, and he he got it for like 50 bucks. And this is a, when you talk about quail, this dude can hatch some quail. This, this would do a lot of duck eggs if you were doing duck eggs. That's pretty big. And uh, he just gutted it. And then just built his own internals. Now it's a different application, but it's the same type of thing. <clears throat> If you can get any kind of insulated box that's big enough, you, you're, you're, you're halfway to there. Because <clears throat> while I really appreciate the folks at Coolbot giving me a $299 Coolbot, I'm still going to be into it for well over a thousand dollars to build this thing. Uh, but I think it's worth doing. And I think it's going to be a good educational product that you guys can follow along with. And I'm happy to help support their company by giving them some exposure. And that was nice of them to send me a product. So I'll, I'll be doing that. Then I guess the other option would be, depends on where you live, if you can go the root seller route. You know, one of the things you might want to do is look at the stuff that's from the BBC on these old farms. There's one that's called Tales from the Green Valley. Uh, there's another one that's called Tudor Monastery Farm. Uh, there's one called Edwardian Farm. And there's one called uh, World War II Farm, I believe it is. And, and they're all done by a gal named Ruth something, and there's some other gentlemen that are some with her and some without her, depending on which ones you go to. Uh, but I think Tales from the Green Valley would be maybe a good place to start because they do an awful lot with, like, storing apples and stuff like that. Um, so if you can do a root cellar type of, of, of an arrangement, that, that may be beneficial. And then it's, you know, it's a passive system. It doesn't have any energy inputs. But that ain't happening here for a variety of reasons. First, I need dynamite, and I need permits for that. Second of all, it, it just ain't feasible here in Texas. I'm not going to get enough cooling effect when it's 120 degrees outside. So I, I, I will say this about CoolBot. If you're going to pick one up before you do, evaluate the their main website. I have a link to where you can buy it on Amazon. And if you're going to buy it, please buy it on Amazon through you know my link. Because uh, it can cost you the same. But if you go to their site, <clears throat> you'll be able to take a look at all of the specifications as to how to build it and and, and do a, what you call in, in construction a takeoff, a material takeoff. Figure out all the materials you're going to need to build the size that you want and overestimate a little bit and come up with a total cost and then say to yourself, self, am I capable or do I have the time to do the build from a, from a carpentry standpoint? And I think almost anybody... Well, it may take you a while, and you'll have some things. You'll be saying some cuss words over and stuff here and there. If you've never done any 
real carpentry work before will have the ability because you're building a room. Just be, you're building a big box. Um, the insulation, again, very, very important, et cetera. But not everybody maybe will have the time. I have a, a contractor I've used for some other things. I'm probably just going to give him all the specs. I'll do the material takeoff. I'll, I'll call down the lows. I'll order the material, and I'll have him pick it up, and I'll pay him something to pick it up and bring it here and say, I want it right there. Here's your air conditioner. Do it. They have another piece of advice, though, on this. The air conditioner. I'm going to just say, if you have the budget, buy two identical ones out of the box. And they have certain models that they recommend. It doesn't mean that other ones will work. But window unit air conditioners are not very expensive compared to the total cost of this project. Buy two. If you do it, design it so it's easy to pull one out, put another one back in. Okay? And if you have your contractor do it, you make sure they do the same thing. Here's why. It seems totally unrelated, but it'll make sense. Back when I was in telecommunications and cable TV systems and stuff like that, there's a day that my, myself and this other guy named Steve, we were going to drive from Texas to California, and we were going to be out there for a few weeks uh, working on a private cable installation out there. And my boss was a guy that owned private cable TV networks. So you might live in an apartment complex, and instead of buying cable from Marcus or you know Charter or whoever, Time Warner, uh, you would buy cable from Creative Systems, which was his company, and and you know I was an employee of that company. And basically, what we would do is we would go into an apartment complex and we would build out a full functioning cable TV head end which means that all the equipment that actually did everything was right there. And we'd have multiple, you know, the old satellite dishes, the big, they call them C-band, they're huge. We would have maybe four of them hitting different satellites, and they would all get trunk together into this room. And in that room would be a processor, a modulator, and a descrambler for every single channel. And then that would pump signal onto cable plant that would take it to all of the apartment complex buildings, and there'd be a box. And it's that little box there. Basically, that cable would bring every single channel to you. And then I was an evil bastard, and if you didn't pay for HBO or whatever, I went in there and stuck some things in called traps that basically filtered out those signals so you only got that. And that's how that worked. And that meant that all that equipment was sitting in a building that had to be closed up, sitting in the Texas heat, running electronics. So if you think it'd get hot in there just being a closed-up building when it's 100 degrees plus out, imagine that much electronic equipment running in there. So we're on our way to California, and we get a phone call, and it's, it's, it's Raleigh, my boss, and he says, hey, I need you to stop at this place on the way. Something's wrong. Channels are starting to go out. Everybody's you know having the same channels go off. It's not an outage. It's selective channels dropping. That's usually something really easy. Maybe it's a bad you know descrambler or something like that. It was, but for an odd reason. The air conditioner, so all we had was a window unit air conditioner mounted in the wall, and this was one that we had basically purchased. It was already built. And that window unit air conditioner had seen its last day, And when we got there, it was about 7.30 at night. It had been 112 degrees that day. And it, in Texas at 7.30 in the summer, it's still getting hotter. It was probably 200 plus degrees in that room. When we opened the door, the copper 
fumes and the chemicals, it was probably bad for us both. We, we got a, a breath of it. And the only other time that my mouth and lungs have ever felt that way was when I drove past 9-11 Ground Zero of, a few days after 9-11. That was the same smell. And so we opened the door. We ran an extension cord. We got a couple fans and stuck them in there and started blowing. Because we're not going in there. And, and we, don't, we, can't, we know what's wrong. We know the air conditioner is off. So we got to go buy an air conditioner anyway. So we go buy an air conditioner. By now you can go in there without, you know, dying. And we had we had three channels down at that point. We had three bad pieces of equipment, but nothing else had cooked itself to death. This is where it got to be a problem. We had to tear the wall apart to get that thing out. Now, this was just basically a, a big tough shed. So we half-assed it together. And we headed to California. It was sealed up. It was secure. We called Raw. I said, you're going to need to have a you know handyman top guy come out here and make it look pretty. If that was an insulated cool bot walking cooler, can you imagine how much it would cost you? Not to mention how much food might be sitting in there that you would lose in the interim. So what I'm saying is make the freaking AC rapidly swappable, okay, and have... Two is one, one is none mentality. Now, it's likely you can go out and find another air conditioner that would fit that hole. I just think when you can buy a really good window unit, high-efficiency air conditioner for about 200 bucks or less, maybe 300 if you go really high-end, if you're going to have that kind of a, you know, counting on it working thing going on, it makes sense to have that backup and be able to just grab it and go. So this is why I actually think it's an even better idea than a walk-in cooler. You aren't going to be able to do that with a walk-in cooler. When you look at a walk-in cooler and the way the refrigerant systems work in those, there's a whole bunch of different points of failure. You can't possibly have everything on hand to fix anything that breaks. So if that walk-in cooler goes down, you got a big problem. You might have to wait on service or whatever. If you build one of these and an air conditioner breaks, you just put another air conditioner in there. And, you know, your air conditioner's probably going to be fine for a while, so you could build it, get it going, and then save some money up and buy a second air conditioner for it, you know, and then just if that one gets replaced, then you've got some time again. But being able to just go, you know, what, if this thing goes down, yank, yonk, won't, won't, plop, poop, plop, back in game? What if there's... $2,000 worth of produce in there. What if it's stuff that you're relying on for your own use if you're doing this personally? I'm just saying that you can't do that with a walking cooler. And, man, I'm excited about it because I'll be able to bring a whole deer home and hang the daggone thing up and age the meat properly. That, that, that's got me going. Plus, we won't have to cram full our refrigerator with eggs anymore. And it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. It's going to be a cool bot cool. So check it out, the cool bot. With that, I do hope you enjoyed today's show. I certainly enjoyed doing it. I love the variety of calls. I have wiped out the calls. I, I didn't go to SpeakPipe today because um, I had so many calls, so good calls, right in the email inbox to the Think Line. So I'll be checking those next week. This is a good time to call in. I had a couple calls with audio quality problems. Jake, dude, you know, from Tennessee, man, you had... You had one call, it just didn't work. It, there wasn't nothing for me to do with it. But yet another call would have been a call. I it would like garbled. So uh, remember, always check the bars on your phone before you make a call. Anyway, um, 
I'll just if you enjoy today's show and you want to support our work, you know that the best way to do that is become a member of the TSP Member Support Brigade. And uh, there's a lot of great discounts there. I have heard back from somebody I've been working on for a while today, and I've been having a hard time getting a lot of new vendors for MSB because what I've tried to do now is kind of up the game. I'm trying to go to larger companies that it takes more work. But I got one that if you're into farming and uh, greenhouses and aquaponics and stuff like that, if this one comes through, it'll pay for your membership many times over. And I want you to know I'm always working behind the scenes to try to get companies like that. I got really close with Midway USA. I went to Larry, Larry Potterfield himself. He's like, I don't make decisions anymore. I'm like, yeah, and it didn't work. And I, so that's the kind of level of company that I'm trying to, uh, to bring into the fold. And I think we're big enough to do that. So, um, consider joining. And the more people I have, the more bargaining power I get with these companies to, to, to do something for you guys. All right. Uh, you can learn more by going to survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Uh, next up, the really easy way to support us is through tspaz.com. You just go to tspaz.com the next time you're going to buy something on Amazon. You click a link. There's amazon.com. just shows up. You just buy your stuff. You go on your merry way. You don't do anything else, and you support the show. Thank you so much to all of you that do that in your daily lives. It is one of the best ways you can possibly be supporting us. I, I really appreciate it, and I, I thank you very much for thinking of us when you're like, I'm going to Amazon. Wait, oh, I'm going to go to TSPAS. Man, thank you. TSPAZ.com. Today's, uh, today's item of the day is nothing special. It's the black Sharpie marker. And, and you might think, why the hell did Jack do that? Well, I try to bring stuff to you that we really use in our house. So every night I'm thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I? Because there's one more thing to do now, right? The item of the day. And uh, last night I was sitting there, and I, I had uh, packed up some bulk herbs, and I'm writing the name of the herb and the date on the lid of the jar with a black Sharpie marker, and I just dug through the drawer to find something. I thought, I need to order some more of these because they disappear like crazy. And uh, I thought, well, you should do this as item of the day. But no, everybody knows about Sharpies. I know they do. But I ended up deciding, you know what, it, it's something that literally gets used daily in our home. And... Uh, I think most people agree, so I threw it up there as a homesteading item. And, I mean, we use it for marking the bottles of fermenting mead. We use it for marking mead once it's fermented and being stored. I use it for writing descriptions on plant labels. I mean, we use it for name tags at events. The Sharpie marker. I actually found a pretty good deal, though. I think it's like 10 bucks for 24 of them. It comes out of 43 cents a marker. So that's a pretty good deal. Uh, check it out at tspaz.com. With that, let's get into the song of the day. This song's by a cat I completely forgot about, you know, uh, from the 80s. This guy was like a quintessential 80s guy. But this wasn't a quintessential 80s song. He had kind of the, the, the kind of the 80 pop music thing going on. Uh, hair, hair, it wasn't a hair band, but it was like a hair guy that had like, uh, you know, hair band hair, uh, running around singing about hot looking girls and stuff like that. And just almost a bubblegumish on some of his music. But he had this one song. And there's a lot of bands like that. They have that one song that like really is deep and meaningful. And, and in this case, the song is called Just Another Day. And, and I want to share a few of the lyrics with you before I play it for you. How about this? People always tell you, boy, be thankful for what you've got. People always say the darndest things, yeah. So you quit taking chances. Call that responsibility. Trade your dreams for a little security. It's just another day. Now, me, I'm a pattern recognition guy, and I recognize things, and I draw connections between things that most people don't. And when I read that line or heard that line the first time, they call that responsibility. 
It made me think of one of my favorite authors, a gentleman named Richard Bach. And if you've never read the book Illusions, it's worth reading. If you are a devout Christian, it might offend you, but it shouldn't because it's a fiction book. And it's a way of looking at the world. And while I look at it differently as a deist than you would, I think you could still gain from it. But in the story, Illusions, the, the character Richard, who is the self-titled, you know, self-author, writes himself into the story, um, who believes he's basically creating uni thought-form universes every time he writes a story, and so are you whenever you imagine something. Uh, in his thought-form story, he meets a gentleman named Donald Shmoda. And Donald is a modern-day messiah. He's what Jesus would be if Jesus came back today, flying airplanes and barnstorming in fields and taking people for a ride for $6 a ride on a biplane. And, and you know, hopping his way across the middle of middle America. And one day, Richard, during one of their fireside chats, says to Donald, how do you know all this stuff? He goes, they give you a book. And uh, he says, they give you a book, like a master's guidebook? And Richard reaches in his pack and throws this little book at him and says, here you go. And, and, and Richard says, or Donald throws it to Richard. Richard says, this is a magic book. He says, nah, I don't know about magic. He goes, you open it. And whatever page you open it to, while you're holding a question in your, your mind, whatever it says will give you the answer to your question. Richard's like, it really is a magic book. And Donald's like, you could do it with peanuts, comics. It, it works with anything. But he keeps the book. And throughout the story, you hear little blurbs of what's in the book. And the one that hit me the most was the best way to avoid responsibility is to say, I've got responsibilities. Because when it comes to your life, you have a responsibility to do the most you can with it, to go out and take risks, to go out and do something big, to go out and be daring, to go out and conquer shit, to go out and make things happen, to go out and improve your life, to improve the life of other people. Well, that doesn't come with a whole great deal of certainty and security. It requires risk. But in our modern day... We push that away and say, but I've got responsibilities. It doesn't mean we, we don't behave what we, in what we would think of as in a responsible way. You do have bills to pay. You do have a family to take care of. And, and there are certain things you have to do at times that you don't want to. But so many of us let it become a crutch. And then the next day, which should be an amazing day, becomes just another day. Don't let that happen to you. Make sure when you have another day, It's an awesome day because we only get so many of them before they run out. And it's a horrible thing to think of going through 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years of life and just thinking it's just another day. And then one day, it's just the last day and you haven't done anything big. Don't let that be you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I always tell you, boy, be thankful for what you got. People always say that don't understand, yeah. So you quit taking chances, I call that responsibility. Trading your dreams for a little security. Just another day Just another compromise Just another night of wondering how
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 